This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The federal conservative leadership race topped the agenda when our crack strategy panel gathered on Tuesday. It was the week before last. Three high-profile would-be candidates, including Ronna Ambrose, announced they would not run. On Monday, MP Aaron O'Toole announced he would join Peter McKay and four lesser-known candidates, Marilyn Gladue, Richard Decari, Derek Sloan, and Rick Peterson, in vying for the job. Neither frontrunner speaks French fluently, and that's ignited a debate about whether the Conservative leader should be proficient in French. Also, some people are angry about O'Toole's new campaign slogan, Take Canada Back, which he launched complete with video of statues of Sir John A. Macdonald being taken down. To talk about the early issues in the race, Libby Snymer was joined by Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, and Shakir Chambers, senior consultant with Navigator. First of all, on the McKay actual launch, I think that the Take Canada Back, we're taking it too literal. I mean, if we're going to sit here and say there is not a segment of Canada that's very upset with the Trudeau Liberals, I think we're all misguided here. They got shut out of of Western Canada, uh, Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan. I think they got one seat or whatnot. There, there are people who Aaron O'Toole is fighting for, and I think that's what he's trying to communicate. I'm going to fight for you to ensure your values are represented. As you know, in a leadership race, there is no actual candidate from Western Canada, and he wants to be the representative of Western Canada in Ottawa. And I think that's what he's trying to communicate. I'm going to fight for you to ensure that your values are represented, your issues are prioritized in Ottawa. What about this tension between McKay, who is perceived anyway as being more liberal, I'm not sure that's actually the case, and the notion that McKay will turn the liberals into the mushy middle. Charles? You know, Aaron O'Toole ran in the last federal conservative leadership race, and he got pasted, I think it's fair to say, um, by the front runners. Um, and I think there's, there's a danger in the O'Toole candidacy if, if they do consistently play to sort of this right of center base um, where they are using code words to try to stoke uh, some positive sentiment in that regard. Um, he runs the risk of becoming sort of, uh, sort of the emblem, the emblem of sort of embittered conservatism, you know, white male, fifties, angry. And, you know, that's not where Canadians are. I mean, Canadians forgave Justin Trudeau an awful lot in 2019 and returned him with a, with a, with a healthy mandate. And so, you know, the bigger issue, and this is where McKay may pose a greater threat is the ability of the conservatives to resolve issues around you know, social issues around climate change and meaningful action on climate change and getting with it. And the O'Toole message is the opposite, which is, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to play to anger, we're going to play to division, we're going to play to fear. Well, I, I think there's, um, I mean, there's two campaigns going on. We need to make sure we're focused on the right one. The first campaign is winning the leadership. And I don't think Aaron O'Toole wins the conservative leadership by going out and being a soft liberal. And the more he can pin, paint Peter McKay is the same in the same 
vein as Justin Trudeau, I think it works to his advantage in terms of mobilizing the party. And I also do think that Peter McKay, he has this, quote, star power because he had a long career, a great career in government, but he's been out of government for some time. And I think that it's going to show as their campaigns evolve. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it because um, politics has changed and the landscape has changed and social media has changed and the way to connect with voters has changed uh, quite a bit, you know, even since I've left politics. And so uh, I think it will be an interesting campaign to watch. And, and I don't know that Peter McKay uh, fully understands the challenge that he's being handed with Aaron O'Toole. And just, just to add to that point, I think any party who's going through, that's going through a leadership race, you always play more to your base. I mean, it's, it's just a natural thing to do. The, the Canadians uh, writ large are not voting for the conservative leader. The conservative membership is voting for the leader. I think after every leadership race, people start to move more to the center because they know they need to bring in a larger coalition of people who are independents or people who might be disaffected with their particular party. So I think what Aaron is doing, I think McKay might do the same thing is play more to the party, but whoever emerges as a leader will start to grow that party a bit more, which is what the party, a conservative party needs to do to be successful. So let's go back a few weeks. Uh, it seemed that the front runners were saying, hey, hey, no social conservatives here. We have one in the race. He is a former operative, Richard Descari. But, you know, a lot of the party members are social conservatives. So how does that tension play out? I think ultimately it's, it's not a matter of the party rejecting social conservatives. I mean, there are, there are different broad strands of social conservatism. I think what the party is actually realizing is that issues like strongly opposing same-sex marriage, even some issues like reopening the abortion debate, uh, make you an electoral liability. And I, I think McKay came out with a statement today saying, whether I'm the leader or whether I'm a private citizen, I'm going to march in the pride parade. He's showing that he's supportive of the same-sex marriage. He's supportive of the LGBTQ community. I think the party itself is moving in that direction. But you can't sit here and say that um, they're, they're, social conservatives are an important part of our party. But again, not all of them are people who are just radical right-wingers, right? There are different kind of strands of social conservatism within the conservative party. Shakir Chambers, senior consultant with Navigator, Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, our Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It seems like a no-brainer to boost the finances of the city of Toronto. Collect the money that's owed. But we've learned that $100 million in traffic fines have not been collected. Toronto's Auditor General pointed out the shortfall in a 2018 report and that staff approved the hiring of two collection agencies to track down fines. The issue is some of these are over 20 years old. Is going after that money the right thing or is it unfair? Libby Snymer posed this question of City Councilor Jim Karagiannis for Ward 22 Scarborough Agent Court and Susan Garasino, Director of Court Services. There's no statute of limitations on court-ordered provincial fences fines. People are encouraged to pay their fines promptly to avoid any additional costs and penalties. And when we think about the justice system, for the public to have trust and confidence, they must be assured that laws are in effect and fines are a meaningful deterrent when laws are broken. And I also would like to say that most people pay their fines. We have done some improvements to our collection strategies that address some of the recommendations made by the city's auditor general. And those changes to our collection strategies and improvement to technologies, they'll affect those people who don't pay their fines and Uh, don't pay them on time. So uh, we really encourage people to pay their fines promptly to avoid any cost or additional penalties. 
Uh, so what are some of those uh, improvements? So some of the improvements uh, we've made is we've contracted with a total of 11 uh, collection agencies, two of which are uh, specialized in collecting old fines. Uh, we've also made some uh, technology advancements, and um, we have 11 total collection agencies. We add defaulted fines to the City of Toronto's property tax rolls and have entered into intermunicipal agreements uh, with other municipalities Sorry, I... to add fines, defaulted fines to their tax rolls. I see that there are 287,046 accounts that have been outstanding for more than 20 years. So you're saying that you or your collection agencies know who all those people are. We take uh, great pride in having meticulous records for court services. And so the uh, court records are, you know, highly accurate. We provide all that data to collection agencies, and then they use that data to track people down and, uh, and encourage them to pay their, their fines. Anything you'd like to leave us with on this? I, I would just like people to know that the court-ordered provincial offences fines uh, don't have a statute of limitations. They don't go away. Uh, and I just encourage people to uh, pay, their, pay their fines on time. Now let's go to Councillor Jim Karagiannis. What is your take on this? Well, my take is that we're using a sledgehammer to, to kill a mosquito. I mean, we're going after people that have been 20 years. I understand that people shouldn't be delinquent, but 20 years? Come on, folks. What, what are we doing here? People don't keep books back that long. And not only that, but the law stipulates that if you don't pay your fines, you cannot get your renewal of your driver's license and your renewal of your sticker on your car. So if a ticket is not unpaid and we're allowing that person to get a sticker on the car for the last 20 years, who's delinquent here? I mean, Revenue Canada... Okay, says that you got to keep your your taxes back five to six years ago. In Revenue Canada, after six years, and this is the federal agency, after six seven years, does not come after you anymore. I understand there's no statute of limitations, but we get there's got to be a heart to somebody which is twenty two years. I mean, the other question is, if I die tomorrow and I had a ticket twenty years ago, what happens? They come after my estate? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, according to your pre, to your, your the person before you, yes, they can come. The person speaking to the to the radio show I, when I was listening in, yes, they can come after your estate. Like, come on, uh, I, I, this is way over the top. Uh huh. Well, again, a hundred million dollars is a pretty big mosquito. Right, but we should have collected that a hundred million dollars uh, in meal piece along the way. That uh, most of these people either did, did, did most of these people had their license renewed, so we're putting they're putting these people behind the eight ball by saying to them, "Okay, you can renew your license. We're okay with it." That which to them signals that I haven't done anything wrong. I paid the ticket. I'm okay. I'm fine. Or the ticket was squashed. That's the common knowledge out there. That if you do not pay your fines, you cannot renew your license. You cannot renew your license if you got outstanding payments to four oh seven. You see, you see the parallel here. Uh huh. Yeah. Except, uh, I we're not sure how long that's been in force. If that was in force for over twenty years. Well, when I was the Parliament Secretary of Transport in federally, uh, this was in force. I remember people from four hundred seven coming up to talk to me and, and giving me the rundown on that. This two thousand and four. So that's fifteen, sixteen years ago. So the fact that we have a, we have a means of saying to people, you can't get renew your license, you cannot get a new sticker for your car if you got a fine on your car. That whose responsibility is it that if you're misleading me and I'm able to get to get that? Okay. So you're misleading me by saying to me, yep, you can you know you can have this, and all of a sudden 
you say, well, hold on a second, you've got to find from years back. This reminds me, if I can summarize, this reminds me of my Greek fat wedding number two, where the guy goes to the priest, and the priest says, well, you're not married. The, 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 the 40 years ago, the priest didn't sign, and they had to get another marriage. Come on, folks, like this, I'm making into a comedy here. City Councilor Jim Karagiannis for Ward 22, Scarborough Agent Court, and Susan Garasino, Director of Court Services. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Britain is no longer part of the European Union. As of yesterday, the divorce is official. On Thursday, we reached out to Canadian political commentator and Washington Times contributor Michael Tobe to see what this means for the future of Britain and the future of Canada. It's been a long time coming, and it's been a very frustrating situation for the United Kingdom. But basically, Parliament, the UK Parliament was gridlocked completely to the point where no one could actually find a way to put forward a deal for Brexit or Britain's exit from the European Union. Former uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May tried several attempts, three in all, and all of them failed in the end. The current UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson struggled initially to get it going because, unfortunately, he lost his majority and people were sort of fighting him in terms of whether a no-deal Brexit, which very simplistically would have been if everything had just come down to it and push come to shove, and the United Kingdom had just been unable to vote on a proper resolution or exit plan, they just would have left with no deal and built everything from that point after. Not the wisest strategy at all, but it was a last, you know, it was a last desperate attempt to do it. In the end, it didn't come down to it. Boris Johnson eventually was able to settle things down in a very volatile parliament in where he lost his majority for a spell. He eventually, you know, he won the election by a big margin. Uh, one of the biggest wins, actually, in the United Kingdom in many, many years. And with his solid majority, he is now able to put it through. And irrespective of the song that we heard earlier, you can certainly understand why a lot of people who supported Brexit are very happy that this thing is over. And quite frankly, I think it's fair to say, Libby, that even people in the UK who didn't support it are probably happy this thing is done with, too. There's always been this interesting to me a divide a generational divide and older people want brexit but younger people don't you know and they the european the people in the european parliament yesterday were saying we'll be back you know who knows well i wouldn't count on it firstly yeah, sure. Never say never. I agree with you. But at the same time, the European Union has been very frustrated over this. They have provided a number of deadlines for the UK to leave or specifically for Britain to leave. I think they're very happy to see that on January 31st, this is all going to be over with. Uh, my sense is probably this is going to be it. And to be fair, I think that the British economy is strong enough to succeed on its own. I think it is strong enough to make trade deals with many different countries and many different trading blocks, including, most interestingly, the EU itself. I think that in the end it probably will succeed. But in the short term, there will definitely be some hardships and some difficult times. People will struggle. Countries will struggle. Issues such as Scotland and Northern Ireland are still obviously on the table and going to be problematic. But once the growing pains are done... If uh, Boris Johnson and his ministers are able to solidify a strong deal that builds solid trade relationships, preserves the economic, uh, the, well, the economic engine of, the, of Britain, and ensures that it actually gets stronger and is able well, to continue uh, me, to stand on the world stage and do well, it'll succeed. And what does it mean for us? 
Obviously, we've had historically a very strong political and economic relationship with the United Kingdom, or Britain specifically, and nothing is going to change in that respect. But naturally, Canada, much like other countries around the world, the U.S., France, Germany, etc., are all going to have to sit down and build or rebuild trade deals specifically with Britain, taking into account the way that the barrier currently exists, or the economic line, so to speak, uh, in terms of things that are obviously important specifically for British interests rather than <clears throat> European Union interests, because that's no longer part of the equation. And look, no matter what you want, it doesn't take 24 hours to build a trade deal. It takes some time. You know, each side will have, you know, various trade negotiators, negotiators and other people in their party to just sort of determine what are the best steps to take and what is the best way to create a good, strong economic relationship, at least in the case you're presenting, between Britain and Canada. So for us, it really, we're in pretty much the driver's seat overall because we are obviously going to be working hand-in-hand with Britain, but we also want to ensure that the trade deal we create is extremely good for us and maybe something similar to what we sort of have experienced with the EU here and there, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. Michael Tobe, political commentator and speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper in conversation with Libby this past Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. The logjam in our court system is about to get worse, and legal experts say the federal government is to blame. It's a complicated situation resulting from a change in the laws around jury selection. The bottom line is that due to a ruling by the Ontario Court of Appeal on the federal changes, our courts may have to retry dozens of cases, including some for murder and sexual assault. Libby delved into the details with our guests, criminal defense lawyers Joseph Newberger and Chris Rudnicki. It definitely felt like the changes to the peremptory challenge legislation came as a direct response to the verdict in the trial of Gerald Stanley, who was uh, acquitted of, of murdering Colton Bushy on his the indigenous man, the young indigenous man, Colton Bushy on his property. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that it was definitely a knee-jerk reaction. Peremptory challenges were most often, in my experience, used by defense lawyers on behalf of racialized or indigenous accused to make sure that the jury was, in fact, more representative rather than less. Um, so getting rid of them might, it doesn't necessarily mean that that goal of having a representative jury is going to be achieved. And, and yeah, I, I think there really, there really was concern about uh, the quality of, of Bill C-75 and the changes to the, the, the jury challenge, the jury composition rules, and changes to a lot of other procedural protections for accused persons in this country. Joseph Neuberger, and nobody saw this before... This it, it turned into this? No, no, we saw it. It's just the government <laughs> didn't care. There were committees, and, and many uh, criminal lawyers uh, testified in those committees. I was out publicly writing and speaking against this legislation the minute they announced it. The, you know, I agree with what Chris says. I'll go a step further. This was in direct response to that case in Saskatchewan. It was uh, an, uh, an appalling situation where both the prime minister and the then justice minister chastised the jury's verdict and decided to get rid of preemptory challenges, which will absolutely do nothing to increase, to increase inclusiveness of Indigenous uh, members of juries. Uh, that, that's just not the case. What it will do uh, is harm being able to find an unbiased jury. Um, this is a preemptory challenge the Crown and defense has had. It's been in 
enshrined in the criminal code for over 150 years. It's been in our system of justice for much longer. And uh, it was a complete fallacy that uh, Justice uh, Wilson-Raybould then acted on. And we saw it. We commented on it. They don't care. Much like other ridiculous changes that the Trudeau government did, uh, Chris, uh, you know, gently mentioned the other change, which was eliminating uh, preliminary hearings for cases that are 14 years and under, because what they want to do is uh, not re-victimize victims, which means for me it's a presumption of guilt. This was a very important mechanism we had in place. The Court of Appeal real, uh, ruled recently that you are entitled to a prelim if you were in the system and had elected. I mean, there's just countless examples of the new legislation that's come in, which is wreaking havoc with the justice system right now, including Bill C-51 regarding the amendments to the rape shield provision. So uh, I, 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 in 27 years of practice, I haven't seen a government act so um, proactively to interfere with our justice system. You know, much could be said about the conservative policies on sentencing, but eliminating uh, procedural uh, and really uh, substantive safeguards that were in place for people uh, who are accused of offenses to me was astonishing. And so sadly, we did see this. I don't know. There wasn't one criminal lawyer not warning about the impact of this, but the government just doesn't care. And they were very short-sighted because they're pandering to particular votes that they want so that they could get reelected. Uh, okay, let me ask you this. We now have a different justice minister, David Lametti. Is there anything at this point can, that can be done to remedy this if they felt like it? I'd eat my robes if the new uh, justice minister <laughs> would uh, walk the legislation back in any way. I think they're going to just have to sit with it. The courts will sift it out. My disappointment is the peremptory challenges, the elimination of it, uh, I have great respect for the panel of the Court of Appeal, but they ruled that the legislation was constitutional. Hopefully that'll go one step higher. I think peremptory challenges were extremely important to defense lawyers and Crown attorneys, and I'm sorry to see it go. Uh, but you know, we'll see what happens after that. What would you like to leave us with on this, Chris? What can we expect? I think you're, the logjam is, is going to continue so long as um, the legal aid cuts continue and there's no investment. The unfortunate reality is that if you want to prosecute crime, if you want people to be uh, effectively represented, and if you want juries to look uh, like the people that are in the acute box, it costs money. Uh, and so it's going to take increased investment from both the provincial government and the federal government in building courthouses, hiring judges, hiring crime attorneys, and making sure that there's enough funding so that accused persons have a fair trial with a good defense lawyer. Criminal defense lawyers Chris Rudnicki and Joseph Newberger. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Ron in Guelph phoned to say he thinks Premier Doug Ford is living up to his promises and all Ontarians need to buy in. I remember when the NDP was in government in the early 90s and it was a disaster for the uh, industrial side of the province. There were no strikes allowed and a lot of companies left. I think the Doug Ford government is doing a good job. I just think that this isn't going to be something that's going to be solved overnight. And I'd hate to see us going back to the way it was. It's tough love. We've got to live up to it. Bob in Etobicoke called to say he doesn't think the next federal conservative leader needs to speak French. We want the best person that's qualified to get around with the rest of the world. 
Whether you speak French or not doesn't really matter. We want somebody that that can run a country and get along with everyone. We've got to pick the best that we can get with the best abilities, whether they speak French or not. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Simon in Toronto, who thinks differently and feels it's vital that the next federal conservative leader speaks French. If you're going to be running for the prime minister's office, you must speak both official languages, especially today with the movement that we're seeing in Alberta With everything that's going on out west, I'm sorry, if you're going to run for the office, you better speak French. Listen, you either speak French or you don't. You must speak both official languages, especially, especially today. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.